Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. All right. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. It is 7 AM in, or just about, just hit 7.01 AM in the morning. And for your presenters today, you have myself, Jacob Andrewafa, and Sue Bolton. All right. So before we get into the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. All right, so for the first part of this kind of program, I thought we would kind of have, me and Sue would have, a, I guess, a bit of a kind of discussion responding to, I guess, Many people would probably be aware that um, the federal election got called on Sunday. And so that essentially means that the major kind of parties, um, the Labor Party and the Liberals, are now in election kind of mode. And I thought we would have actually kind of like a bit of discussion about, you know, what what both these sort of major kind of capitalist parties are actually kind of putting forward you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of, I guess, this kind of election. And I guess the kind of first thing to kind of starting off is it was kind of, um, it was sort of fascinating kind of watching Morrison's sort of TV kind of ad, which he sort of launched as sort of part of his election campaign to kind of give a bit of a kind of summary of it. He essentially kind of starts off by going, you know, we're living in very sort of uncertain times. You know, we have floods, we have pandemics, now we have war. Um, this is why, and then sort of goes into tries to make this argument, okay, where essentially says he, he cites the success that um, they've had with the COVID pandemic, which, you know, to the credit of the government in a sense that the suppression strategy did save lives compared to the sort of let it rip sort of strategies of the, of the Trump governments in 2020. I mean, he can't, but at the same time, he's completely deliberately ignoring all his failures with, say, the vaccine rollout and, um, you know, the quarantining facilities and also the recent aged care disaster, which actually was a recurring um, trend for the pandemic. Um, but then, of course, there's also obviously all the other issues that of mishandling the pandemic that he's kind of ignoring, uh, despite the fact that, you know, he's sort of citing this sort of success around the suppression phrase, which actually, for the record, he didn't actually necessarily support back when it was actually implemented because it was more, it was the state governments that actually implemented the suppression strategy of COVID. Then, um, then he sort of goes into about, you know, how great the, um, the Australian economy is going compared to the kind of rest of the world, which kind of ignores, I guess, the whole issue, I guess, of insecure kind of work. But then I guess the funniest sort of part that the, um, that the kind of ad ends on is he says, well, I went to a trade school. I went to a trade school class and I asked everyone who put their hands up at the, who is starting, who is going to start a business and basically, 
According to Morrison, half the people in this supposed class put their hands up that they're going to start a business. And he ends the ad by saying, how great is Australia? Um, or this is why I love Australia. Um, and it actually kind of like, yeah, this is sort of like reflects the kind of election campaign that Morrison is making um, in, in terms of the pitch that he's actually making to voters. And, of course, we know, you know, at FreeCR and Green Left Radio, we obviously know and have been criticising the Morrison's record the whole time because, really, you know, in terms of every decision the government has made, no, they haven't made a single decision that wasn't in that wasn't driven by the interests of business and profit. <clears throat> well, I think um, from Morrison's point of view and the Liberals' point of view, it's actually quite a clever advertisement. And you know, I mean, Scott Morrison comes from a marketing advertising background, and it's all about twisting and spinning things, and. You know, will it work? I don't know. There are, you know, people have had a couple of years of experience with Morrison because, you know, the ad is trying to just, um, you know, try trying to lull people into forgetting about all of the disasters that have happened under the Morrison government, handling of bushfires, handling of the floods in northern New South Wales where they left people in roof cavities and on roofs for, you know, over over a day, um, waiting to be rescued, hoping they wouldn't drown. Um, he's hoping people will forget about all of these disasters and be lulled into, um, into sort of a false sense of security that all these lives were saved. He also said, oh, there are 700,000 people in jobs, blah, blah, blah. But what... And the other argument he's got, which is not so much in the advertisement, but is that people should vote for me because you know what you're going to get. Now, he's trying to say, I mean, that's obviously meant to be a fear fear campaign against Labor. Oh, Labor will do all these terrible things to you. But actually, and Labor's not really counterattacking against that line at all, because in reality... You know, we want people to remember all of the disastrous things that Morrison has done. The other thing with the ad is he's trying to make it sound like they're all of these things that the government can't control, that they're trying to keep a steady hand. So they start off by, you know, as you say, talking about tough times. It's been tough times, you know, all of these terrible things that have happened, um, war and COVID pandemic, et cetera, like uncontrollable things. Um, and therefore we've governed, you know, sensibly, we, you know, during all of these disasters. So, you know, I think, um, you know, hopefully uh, people won't be lulled into a false sense of security um, by these things because there are certainly a lot of people who have had direct experience of the Morrison government who will feel... Um, you know, are angry with Morrison. But I just, you know, definitely hope that people aren't sort of conned or some people aren't conned by this terrible messaging. And this is where I sort of feel like, you know, it's not enough, you know, for parties just to be, you know, knocking on doors, doing stalls, saying vote for the opposition or vote against ScoMo. Um, actually, I don't like using the word SCOMO because it humanises Morrison. I prefer to call him Morrison. Um, 
it's um, there's a need for action, and I think that's what where there has been a lack of action from the union movement. Okay, I can understand during the pandemic um, they might not have wanted to mobilise in terms of the spread of COVID, but I really think, especially um, this last you know six to eight months. Um, there are so many things the union movement needs to mobilise on and, I, and focus people on the real class enemies in terms of big business and, and the government and so forth. And I think that's, that's really important because when people are just passively consuming media, that's when people are more vulnerable to being disoriented by clever advertising campaigns um, than when people are mobilised and really, you know, have their minds fixed on who the culprit is for climate change, for leaving them in the lurch during the pandemic, for leaving them in the lurch through other things. Hmm. And yeah, I think, um, yeah, for one of the other issues as well is, um, while he mentions flood, it's kind of, um, when he mentions floods, he actually is actually deliberately being dishonest in actually, basically, actually kind of um, hiding the fact that actually the Morrison government has had a terrible response to the floods the whole time. In fact, they've actually tried to just say, externalise it as Mother Nature, so to speak. And that is actually one of the kind of recurring kind of things. It attempts to actually externalise all these sort of crises um, and problems that have actually... Being, um, that have actually been made worse by the Morrison government and the actions of of them, and actually just trying to say, well, we're just doing we're just doing the best we can. You can't blame us. Um, and I guess that's where I guess the next kind of important kind of part comes in is, well, what is the kind of Labor Party kind of op- offering in response? And the actual reality is based on what what all the kind of media reports are kind of saying. Um, the Labor Party is actually offering very little, and in fact, this, and in fact, they're actually in some ways trying to make themselves out to do, be almost indistinguishable from the Liberal Party because it's, this is part of Labor's kind of small kind of target kind of strategy. They're only sort of tackling the Morrison government on small kind of issues. In fact, probably to the government, to the credit of of <laughs> Labor Party, the most probably the most progressive thing they've put out has been that they're committing to funding aged care. But, of course, that's the only thing that they've really sort of committed to attacking the Morrison government. When it comes to things like JobSeeker, they've already kind of confirmed that they're not going to be committing to raising the JobSeeker payment. Uh, they're not even committing to giving it a review because, actually, that was one of the promises that um, Bill Shorten uh, did during the last federal election. In fact, he promised that if you if you elect me... I will look into reviewing JobSeeker. They didn't actually uh, um, commit to increasing the rate of JobSeeker. So now they've actually, the Labor Party have actually gone backwards actually even more. They're actually saying they're not even going to review it and we're not going to commit to increasing it either. Um, and then the other issue is on the issue, um, refugee rights. Um, the Labor Party have already basically said we're not going to, we're going to stand firm on our, on our policy of turning back people, um, people smugglers, which is basically we're supporting the, the existing Liberal Party policy of, of vote turnbacks. Um, and then, yeah, and then, but, ba- but essentially we're not actually seeing any kind of genuine kind of return to being put forward by the Labor Party, which sort of just makes me, you know, it does raise kind of questions in terms of how this election is going to play out. Um, depending on like, you know, 
it's sometimes hard to kind of imagine the opposition winning if there's all this sort of uncertainty or, you know, if people are feeling like a crisis in terms of like the cost of living, which is one of the biggest issues that none of the major parties are really wanting to kind of address, then it kind of goes to show that, you know, people could easily get sucked in and vote in for Morrison on the basis of the fact that, well, Labor is not really offering anything or worse, people could be you know, people could end up voting um, along for other parties that claim to support the interests, but don't. Nece- uh, but don't. Um, and in fact, case in point, United Australia Party being the kind of classic example. So I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of kind of uncertainty. I think with this election result, um, with this election, and it'll be remains to be seen how it's going to play out. Especially since under the Morrison government, um, we. We, it's not just the pandemic. They've lived at the start of 2020. There was the whole bushfires. Then we had the whole COVID-19 pandemic for over two years. Then we have the, um, the floods. And then now we have the war in Ukraine. There's all these sort of, the, the, the elections happening at the backdrop of all these sort of major sort of events. And it remains to be seen how those things are going to kind of impact on this, on this election. Yeah. I think, you know, the Labor Party's only argument, really, only central argument as to why people should vote for them rather than the Liberals is that they're not the Liberals. And so they're hoping that people will remember all of the crimes of Scott Morrison. But in terms of a policy sense, there are very few policies they're putting forward to differentiate themselves from the Libs. Um, and you are right, you mentioned one. I was almost scratching my head trying to think of one. But, um, you know, their policy of putting a nurse in every aged care home, um, guaranteeing a nurse in every aged care home, which then raised cries from the opposition about, um, you know, how where we're going to find nurses from, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they didn't also really counterattack about that, like try to make the Libs, you know, feel guilty for opposing nurses being in aged care homes. That ought to be such a basic, basic argument. So it's um, it's really, you know, this is why we definitely need left a left alternative in all of this because otherwise a lot of people who are disenchanted for the, with the major parties are going to vote for the Clive Palmer's United Australia Party and pass their preferences straight back to the Liberals. So, you know, we need sort of the le- uh, a left, you know, needs um, support for the left electoral alternatives in this. Hmm. All right. Well, I'll just play a quick announcement. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855. Hi, I'm Jacob from the Friday Rave. The community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and, in doing so, remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with work and bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now, we need your commitment to keep this great theme going. 
Now you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 9419 8377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and I'm going to be playing a pre-recording of an interview that um, me and fellow Green Left Radio presenter Chloe recorded um, yesterday. Um, it is good. It is an interview with um, a socialist in France um, called um, who is John Mullen, and. This is um, the context for this interview is the fact that the first round of the presidential elections in France have uh, occurred, where um, where where many where um, a radical left candidate John Luc Mélenchon won over twenty percent of the vote, which was which is I think quite significant, and then. At the same time, we've also saw, unfortunately, also very quite a high vote for the far right um, candidate, um, Marine Le Pen, and then the traditional establishment candidate Macron got um, Emmanuel Macron got the major got the majority of the vote, um, but not enough to get through the entire first round. So there will be a second round of the president um, of the French presidential elections in a number of weeks. But for now, we've um, we had a good discussion with John Mullen discussing his kind of analysis of. The, these results and what I guess it means for broader French society and politics. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. You're listening to Green Left, and for our program today, we are we are very happy to be interviewing John Mullen, who is an anti-capitalist activist in the Paris region and a supporter of the group France Insoumis. He also maintains a political website um, titled randombolshevik.org. And John Mullen has been um, writing quite regularly on French politics um, for for Green Left and uh, a whole host of um, ra- um, different left publications. And we have him. We're going to be having him on our program today to have a bit of a discussion about the first round of election results. So this um, this podcast is being recorded on stolen land of the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I like to acknowledge. Um, that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And the, um, your presenter today is myself, Jacob. And me, Chloe. All right. Um, so, hello, John. Um, I guess um, just to um, get maybe kind of start off, I guess, the kind of first kind of question for our program, I guess I want to kind of hear, I guess, your kind of summary, I guess, of the election results in terms of the fundamental social, economic and political trends that are currently shaping French society. Well, what we're seeing is a, a really a collapse of the two traditional blocs that have been governing French society for decades. So the traditional conservatives only got, uh, how many did they get? One and a half million votes. And you meant there are about, about 50 million adults in France, although 12 million of them stayed home last Sunday. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's very important because very often in the newspapers, you only see the percentages. But in fact, what we want to know is what's happening uh, in the population, in the working class. So the traditional right collapsed down to 1.5 million. The traditional left, the Socialist Party, who were actually the presidency and the government until five years ago, got 600,000 votes. A, a historic collapse of the Socialist Party and of the tra- tra- traditional right. Uh, and a very significant rise, both of the uh, uh, far right and fascist, with two candidates, 
total 10.5 million votes. And of the radical left, with the biggest radical left uh, uh, vote for probably 50 years more, uh, uh, of, which, which is 7.5 million votes for Jean-Luc, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Uh, so that's that's the the uh, essential uh, picture. It's a very exciting time. I mean, it's very exciting to see the sort of program that Mélenchon's putting forward, getting seven and a half million votes. I mean, uh, just to remind you, this is, uh, you know, uh, let's get out of nu- nuclear energy straight away, move to 100 percent renewable energy, to 100 percent organic agriculture, um, um, uh, huge raises for the rises for the minimum wage and for pensions, uh, clamp down on tax havens. Um, and, and on uh, and, and uh, tax the rich much more, uh, far more radical than even even something like Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, even more radical than that, uh, and tremendously popular, uh, and also taking place outside the traditional parties of the left, uh, which gives the, uh, which gives them a bit more leeway to do things differently. I think. Thanks, John, uh, for that um, response. Um, our next question is. Why is it that Le Pen will do better in this second runoff than she did in 2017? Well, uh, in 2017, uh, Macron said, you know, vote for me and, and this will be a, a barrage against the far right. Uh, and it's exactly the opposite which has happened. That is to say that uh, under tremendous pressure from the Yellow Vest movement, under tre- tremendous pre- pressure from uh, massive student movements and in particular the the workers' strikes against the uh, the attempt to smash pensions, which Macron did, which Macron had to abandon because of the strikes. Under this pressure, Macron, although he he hadn't a long tradition of Islamophobia, decided that that was the place to go, uh, and so he passed a, a bunch of new laws uh, against separatism, as as, as he called it, uh, which involved uh, banning Muslim organisations and uh, just generally uh, generally telling people that the problem was Muslims. Uh, and, of course, this, this actually encouraged the far left because, as, uh, as, uh, as Le Pen's father said a long time ago, people prefer the original to the copy. And so when Macron uh, hammers the Muslims, this actually makes the, the far right rise. Uh, and at the same time, increasing poverty uh, has also led people to uh, desperate responses, including to the far right. This means that in the first round, 10.5 million um, for, the, for the far right, which is, which is more than uh, Le Pen got even in the second round um, five, five, five years ago. Uh, and no doubt she will do better uh, than, she, than, she did, uh, than she did last time. I'm expecting uh, Macron to, to win the uh, second round of the election. Um, uh, on, uh, uh, on, on the other hand, making firm predictions is always a dangerous thing for a Marxist to do. Yeah, and I guess one of the interesting kind of elements, I guess, that has been kind of happening, I guess, in the background of this election is, I mean, in the past several years, a lot of people on the left have been kind of expired by the the massive kind of yellow vest movement um, that was that in led to kind of massive kind of protests um, around in response to you know costs of um, what would be kind of termed even cost of living kind of issues around the kind of price of fuel and and so on, and I guess I want to hear. Um, John, I guess a bit of your analysis on, I guess, what has been the kind of enduring political impacts of the Yellow Vest movement, especially in terms of this act, um, this election? Uh, well, the, the Yellow Vest movement was very inspiring, in particular because it, uh, it all came very much from the small towns which are considered not very political. 
Uh, and indeed, it came from parts of the country where Le Pen's vote had, had traditionally been quite strong. And at the beginning of the movement, we were rather worried about that. And the influence of Le Pen and the attempted influence of Le Pen uh, uh, had made some inroads. But uh, patient uh, and determined work by an awful lot of union activists and local leftists uh, marginalised uh, the far right within the Yellow uh, Vest movement. And in particular, uh, the big issue for the Yellow Vest became police violence. And of course, Le Pen was never going to de- denounce police violence. Indeed, I, I believe uh, it's more than half the, of the police force that vote for, uh, that vote for her. Now, as for its enduring uh, uh, effect, that's very difficult because, of course, it, it goes up and then it goes down and, uh, uh, and it doesn't have any uh, designated leaders or structures. Uh, and so, you know, it's very hard to say, to, to be able to say what are uh, Yellow Vest's uh, thinking. You've got occasional uh, attempts to, uh, to run local candidates in the name of Yellow Vest, but it could never come to very much because it's not, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's not a movement which is very, very co- co- coherent. Uh, so I think its main effect has been to encourage, along with the pension uh, protests, uh, uh, a, a sense of revolt. Um, and that, that really is very much helped. I mean, the reason that Mélenchon has been able to rebuild left reformism with this new insurgent tone is because of the tremendous combativity and class consciousness of French workers over the last 25 years. You remember the pensions, many of the strikers, perhaps even most of the strikers, were striking so that pension conditions would be maintained for newly recruited workers. That is to say that the very, very large numbers of strikers were striking not for their own pensions, but for those of their younger colleagues, for their nieces and nephews or, or children and so on. So it's very much political strikes. And the previous uh, uh, five years earlier, the strikes against the labor, refor- labor law reform, again, very much political strikes about the, uh, about the forms of contract which are acceptable in French in French society. And so this is real political class consciousness. And so it, it's not surprising that this has translated itself eventually into a mass political movement, which tries to get in Parliament the sort of people who can, uh, that, who can defend workers' interests. John, you mentioned police violence and, and the fact that uh, Macron did nothing to oppose police violence, um, especially during the Yellow Vest movement. Uh, and the French police are often described as the most violent in Western Europe. Is this true? And how has Macron used force to crush dissent? Uh, it, it, I, I, there, a lot of things, there are a lot of things I don't understand about police violence in France. Uh, it, it's been rising for at least 10 years. And uh, under the socialist uh, uh, president previously, it was already on the rise. I, re- I remember being in a demonstration and hearing a sergeant shouting to his policeman, go now, maximum violence. That was the instruction given, maximum violence. Uh, I, I was really shocked. I mean, you know, I'm an old hand, but, you know, I was, I was really shocked. And so it's, it seems that there is a, uh, a determination to make sure that uh, people understand that if, if they rebel, they will be uh, they, they will they will pay the physical price. Uh, and indeed, the yellow vests, uh, 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 there were dozens of people who lost an eye, each one completely illegal because this is firing uh, rubber bullets, which are supposed to be fired at the legs. This is firing them directly at, at people's heads. So completely illegal uh, and very, very scary, of course. Uh, and I think one of the ways that uh, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon stood out from the other main, from the other parliamentary left candidates is he said, you know, all yellow vests uh, uh, arrested or imprisoned will be will be amnested. 
Uh, and also uh, uh, last year uh, in the parliament, he, he demanded a minute of silence for those killed, those yellow vests killed or injured. And this is what I, this is what I mean when I say there's a certain insurgent tone. You know, it's, it's really sort of going there and making, making a noise, making a stand. And although the priority of the France Sansonese elections, nevertheless, even where, even in the parliament, they, they, they say, you know, we're here to make trouble. We're here to, we're here to, we're here to shout out, make a noise. We're not just joining uh, the different committees in the traditional way and uh, being polite, op- polite, loyal opposition. And I guess that kind of leads into, I guess, one of the next questions, especially in this question around um, the French kind of um, the repression of the French police, because there has been this whole, you know, scourge, I guess, of Islamophobia um, within within French society for like the past several years. I mean, even going, I mean, even predates um, predates 9/11, but I guess you know, around 9/11, this the kind of rush around the Islamophobia actually got even worse. And I guess one of the other issues with Islamophobia is that, you know, the French left has not necessarily had the perfect kind of positions. And in fact, some of them have actually had, you know, from from our perspective from afar, you know, some of the French left has actually had some quite reactionary positions on how to respond to the question of Islam. And I guess that gets leads into the kind of question of, you know, why has confronting Islamophobia been such a challenge for the French left? And I guess... What have been the recent kind of turning points? Uh, well, Islamophobia has been at best a blind spot and, and at worst a, a deep shame for almost all the French left for, for 50 years. Now, where does this come from? It partly comes from a, a long and foolish tradition of the French left to believe that being left wing means detesting believers. For many, many years, this meant detesting Catholic believers. But when uh, Muslims became the enemy on the international stage, this kind of meshed together. And this idea, oh, yeah, let's detest believers, uh, became, oh, let's detest Muslims. Uh, and so you got, I mean, uh, 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 newspapers like Charlie Hebdo, which had sections, uh, sections of the newspaper are left wing. And other sections of the, uh, of the newspaper are the most vicious uh, is, is Islamophobia that just make you want to. Make you feel physically sick to, uh, to, 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 to look at them. Uh, and so what has the left done? Well, uh, I guess 20 years ago, there were about 5% of left activists who thought fighting Islamophobia was a priority. Uh, and then uh, 10 years ago, there were 15%. But that didn't make much difference because we worked very hard. Yeah? But that didn't make much difference because at the national level, the leadership said, oh, let's not talk about this. It will divide our organizations. And it was the sort of issue that could destroy organizations. So people kept quiet. Uh, the recent turning point is that Jean-Luc Mélenchon is the first uh, political leader with a mass following to loudly and repeat- repeatedly defend Muslims. I'm not saying his position is perfect, but it's a historic turning point uh, that where uh, 10 years ago some, an, 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 attack on, uh, an attack on Muslims would be would be uh, would be. Um, the only reaction from the left would be some rather unhappy press releases. Uh, today, uh, it, it's becoming something. Now, it's very far from what I would like to see. But nevertheless, uh, uh, even at his, his electoral speeches where the issue is not particularly Islamophobia, he'll say, and another thing, one of the most important things is we don't want to be divided Muslims against the rest. Well, we're not, we don't agree with this. So he's actually bringing it up when nobody's brought it up. And we're uh, uh, us who've been uh, fighting Islamophobia for 30 years. 
It's incredible. How can they, well, I, I must be dreaming. Um, so it's a, it's a tremendous difference. And, and this really made a difference because uh, actually of Muslims who voted, over 65% voted Mélenchon. Because they're not stupid. <laughs> they noticed the difference. Uh, and a whole network of anti-racist and uh, anti-Islamophobic groups, mostly black groups uh, in, the, uh, or in, the, in the poorer towns, got together and wrote an appeal to vote for Mélenchon and said, things have changed. Ten years ago, these groups said, fuck white politics. Uh, so there's really been something tremendously, and, and uh, old people like me, we've been waiting for it for 30 years, and uh, so we can get a bit emotional, but that's understandable. Uh, John, for the 2017 presidential election, Mélenchon decided to unilaterally shelve the left front and the necessary compromises that come from working with other groups, in particular the Communist Party, and founded the and founded La, La France Insoumise. Um, whatever criticism can be made of the way this decision was implemented, why did he do it, and was he proven right? Well, the, the problem with alliances between political parties is it's a bit like marriages after a divorce. You ask the two members what went wrong and you get two completely different stories. But this is my, my opinion, is that the Fond de Gauche was a, was a, was a, was, did not work. Uh, mainly because the Communist Party was torn between a, a, a desire to be radical and a desire to continue running joint regional governments with the Socialist Party, which they still do around the country. Uh, and so it was uh, putting the brakes on all the time uh, and so Mélenchon tried to do something new uh, with the France Insoumise, and I think there's a lot of things we don't understand yet, but he tried to develop a new kind of left reformism with a, with a, with a fair chunk of left patriotism in there. We can talk about that, 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 that too. Uh, and, uh, it's he, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he might have been wrong, he might have been right, but in fact he was right. I mean, that's just, you know, the proof of pudding is in the eating and seven and a half million votes is something that the Front de Gauche, the Front de Gauche couldn't get, you know. And so, yes, so I think he was right. And also, I think he was right to, and the reason he did the Front Sansomies is he wanted to get away from horse trading between party leaders. Oh, uh, we'll give you Toulouse if you give us Marseille, uh, which is a, a, a long and, uh, and uh, horrific, uh, horrible tradition um, in France and elsewhere, uh, but, uh, and, and really tried to concentrate on the, the politics and the programme uh, and I think it, he's generally uh, been uh, been very successful despite all the forces arrayed against him and the huge number of um, smear campaigns run against Jean-Luc Mélenchon. He was a megalomaniac, and that he was an anti-Semite, and that he was a friend of Putin's. Uh, and these were all uh, these were all accepted or treated in a horrifically naive way by most people on on on, on the left. Oh, do you think he's a friend of Putin's? I wonder if he is. Let's discuss it on the internet. You know, I mean, people are, in my opinion, left people are generally hopeless at dealing with smear campaigns. And you get all these left people saying, oh, don't you think he might be a friend of Putin sometimes on a Tuesday? You know, and it makes it makes me so mad. So well, it's really, you know, you need to fight back when there's a smear campaign. Uh, and and uh, Miloshot is not a friend of Putin, but he is a friend of, you know, of, of people who want change. And he's not a revolutionary. But he's he's a guy who wants change, uh, which is uh, and he, and he, I, I I'm a great supporter of this. 
Yeah. And I guess, um, just looking, I guess, from afar, um, the 2021 campaign actually seemed to kind of represent a bit of a kind of step up in kind of mass engagement by the Melanchon campaign. And I guess, how was this different to 2017? And I guess, what can you tell us, I guess, about the Union Populaire? Well, the the Union Populaire was, I think, was was pretty pretty smart. Uh, what uh, Melanchon and, and his team wanted was people to support the presidential candidacy who didn't feel France Insoumise. They didn't feel France Insoumise because it has some rather specific characteristics, whether it be um, left patriotism, whether it be this or that, or that or the other. And so he wanted to open it out so that people didn't have to say, OK, I'm becoming France Insoumise. They'd say, well, no, I have some disagreements, but I'll join this wider group. Uh, and so in particular, so they, we, they set up a, a parlement, uh, well, a, a sort of uh, consultative assembly uh, of the Union Populaire, which was led by uh, Aurélie Trouvé, the, the, the ex-president of ATTAC, the, the um, Outer Globalization uh, uh, Movement. So he did manage to, it was a, a way of widening it out, because the thing about presidential elections is, you know, you need a lot, of, you need a very wide support. And if you just want, if you only look for the support of people who exactly agree with you, when well, it's not, it's not going to work. So that's how it worked. And this was also, this also allowed other groups to, to come in. I mean, I've never seen anything like what happened in this last month. You know, suddenly there was appeal of 800 university lecturers to vote for Mélenchon. And then these anti-racist groups I, met, uh, uh, I mentioned, sections of the young communists were saying, don't vote for the Communist Party candidate, vote for Mélenchon. Uh, so there was a, re- a real dynamic of the Union Populaire. And of course, you know, nothing seems like success. So more, less politicised people, when they see things dynamic and moving around, it gives them hope. Uh, and so I think that was uh, very successful. But I also think that it was something that Mélenchon is good at, that he understands political differences. Um, and he said, you know, I'm not asking you to agree with me on everything. I'm just asking you for this, this and this. Um, and so you know, he's, not, he's, not, he's not frightened of disagreements. Uh, so I, I think he he, ha- he handled that he handled that very uh, uh, very well. Uh, I mean I don't know if I sound like a, a mad fan of Melanchon, but this may be because I've been fighting against these smear campaigns for months. So you know I'd, I'd rather I'd rather go too far in the other direction. Thanks, John. Can you tell us about why there were smaller revolutionary Trotskyist groups running their own presidential candidates? I mean, were they wrong to do this? And, and what was the nature and the purpose of the Communist Party's campaign? Um, well, the, the, these, are, these are two slightly different questions. To take the, the two Trotskyist candidates, they're, they're very different. Uh, um, one then is, uh, work, uh, I'm not going to go into great detail, but one is Workers' Struggle, who have always run their own candidate and never run joint campaigns with anybody about anything. So there wasn't much point in being disappointed with them for not supporting Mélenchon. Uh, and then there was the NPA, the new, new anti-capitalist party, who, on the contrary, frequently run joint campaigns, anti-racist campaigns, campaign to defend the hospital or whatever, with everybody they can, including the Socialist Party, quite rightly, uh, are really on the ground fighting, uh, and indeed have run uh, joint election campaigns with the France Insoumise for local elections in, in a few towns, in a couple of towns. Uh, and so, so... However, the new anti-capitalist uh, party decided to uh, stand their own, own candidate. I consider, th- I think this is a historic mistake. Uh, now, I wouldn't like to, I wouldn't like to make any specific predictions, but they will pay a huge price for this. Um, 
really not so much because they got 200,000 votes or 300,000 votes, which could have come to Melanchthon. That's not the point. It's that they are an independent Marxist voice. There's this huge organization, La France Insoumise, which is debating and pushing for very radical change. And the NPA boycotted this debate in their newspaper. They literally, and it's easy to check on the web, on their newspaper, search for the word Mélenchon. They, they never mention him except every three months they find a particular point to denounce him on. Uh, and so there's this huge debate which is being boycotted by, uh, by, by the Marxists, whereas, whereas in fact the La France Insoumise is bringing up huge, difficult questions. What to think about animal rights? Uh, what about uh, 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 ecology and, ecology and, and, and defend, defending jobs? Um, what about... Um, what was the other one? Oh, yeah, the, the, all the different different questions about feminism and Marxism. They're all bubbling up. I was at the summer school, which was the biggest left summer school in France uh, of the France. So we saw all these questions were coming up. And I'm thinking, well, you know, where are the Marxists? And they decided to stay warm uh, among themselves. And, and this is what sectarianism is. sectarianism is. Sectarianism is not being mean to other people, although, you know. Being mean to other people is generally not not to be encouraged. Uh, it's about starting with your organisation instead of starting with where the mass of the people are. Uh, and so the huge problem of the NPA campaign was for most workers, it seemed to be the same. Mélenchon said, let's have a citizen's revolution and make all these huge radical changes. Poutou said, let's break with capitalism and make all these huge radical changes. Now, I'm a Trotskyist. I know the difference, but almost everybody doesn't. Uh, and so, really, uh, they they fought very hard, the NPA, to get 1% of the votes based on distinctions, which mean nothing to the mass of the people. So I think it was a huge mistake. Um, now, the reason for the mistake is, well, the NPA has different tendencies, which have different ideas. Some of them think that Mélenchon is pretending to want change. That he doesn't want change. He's pretending to want change. That's the worst uh, bunch. And the rest, well, they, they have this sort of idea that what you need to do is to, is to represent Marxist ideas uh, on the electoral stage. And, you know, uh, and then you know, and or that the only important place for struggle is, 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 uh, is in the streets and elections don't count. So, you know, I mean, the whole huge this huge debate of how much can you change through elections? It's an essential debate, but it needs to be it needs to be carried out in front of millions of people and not in front of hundreds of people. And that's why I'm extremely disappointed with the NPA. I was a member of the NPA for many years before I left them. And so I'm so disappointed with them because I feel like I feel they have boycotted the debate about the crucial, the crucial questions of change. And well, that gets into, I guess, the kind of next kind of question, because I guess, yeah, we have obviously kind of like this whole issue of, I mean, revolutionary kind of Trotskyist groups running their own presidential camp candidates in a sense of, you know, not necessarily connecting to the kind of mass base that uh, the John Luke Mollenchon kind of campaign um, did. But on the other hand, though, you did, you have pointed out that, you know, John Luke Mollenchon isn't a revolutionary at the end of the day. And of course, a lot of these groups actually have, you know, a particular kind of criticism of Mellichon. So I'm kind of here interested in kind of hearing, I guess, before we get into some of the other questions afterwards, I guess, what, is, what are some of the criticisms of Mélenchon from the radical left? And I guess including his French patriotism. And, I mean, and also relating this to, you know, what are some of the, his sort of major kind of limitations, political, politically speaking? Well, I, I mean, it, from the far left, it depends. I mean, the, the worst of the far left, I call them the, 
Melanchon ate my hamster brigade because they, they just they just hate him and I and I've never understood why. Uh, but certainly there are Marxists in general, or me for example, uh, there are some very real uh, real questions. Uh, uh, Melanchon says. Uh, we can use the symbols of French patriotism, the, tri- the tricolor flag of the Marseillaise, and we can use this to push for um, uh, progressive change. And it's true that left patriotism sounds less insane when the national slogan is liberty, equality and freedom, rather than whatever the Australians have as a, as a, as a slogan, probably something less, uh, uh, less progressive. Um, uh, nevertheless, uh, the problem is that uh, Mélenchon imagines France playing a positive role on the international stage, using the fact that it has nuclear weapons as leverage to uh, encourage peace in the world, and all of so- these sorts of things that obviously uh, Marxists could never, could never agree with. Um, and also left, left patriotism has, uh, has other ideas because it, it, it has other problems because it, it means we should identify with France. So if France loses economic influence to China in Africa, we should be sad. And all these sort of ideas that of, of identifying, in fact, with national capital, these are really problematic. Now, what's good about Jean-Luc Mélenchon is that he, he explains them in detail. And he deserves detailed and fraternal responses from the Marxists saying, oh, no, no, we don't agree because. Uh, uh, but the, the problem is there's a very few Marxists doing, doing the response. No, this is not good. There are not none at all. There are there are two Marxist groups inside the Front Sansemis, each one of about about a hundred members, but doing you know fair, you know do, doing what they can to 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 have a Marxist uh, input uh, in, in, uh, into the debate. So I think uh, certainly left patriotism and the, the uh, and foreign policy are, are big weaknesses. Uh, the other one is the whole question of elections. That how much can elections change? Now again here. Uh, to def- uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to defend uh, uh, Mélenchon even by attacking him. Mélenchon did a series of lectures recently on what happened in 1981, what went wrong. This was the last time we had a big radical left government in, uh, in France and, and the left believes it went wrong. I, uh, I agree with them. Uh, but Mélenchon, unlike most left reformists, don't avoid, doesn't avoid this question. No, he does hour-long lectures on it. So this is what happened. Uh, the left government came to power and didn't change much. Why not? Why it can be different next time? I don't agree with him. But, you know, he, he's putting the questions on the table. And so we, uh, what Marxists have to do is, is get stuck in uh, and, and, and answer and, go, and, and do the studying and do the work. Because you know, uh, Melosha's a bit of a historian um, and, 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 to, and answer back. And in that way, build the influence of, of Marxism, which can take a movement which for the moment, you know, radical people in France for the moment, want a left government. Because, that, you know, most people aren't revolutionaries. They say, oh, you know, things need to change. We need another government. That's how you do it, isn't it? Uh, and it's only like, it's only in the, uh, in this, in this struggle, um, that, uh, that, you know, people can, people can go further, uh, but they certainly won't if you're not even, if you don't, if you're not even with them and you're not even talking to them. Hmm. And um, that gets into, I guess, the next question, um, which is, I guess, how is La France Insoumise Position to guess organise the coming battles against a second term Macron um, administration, or guess the worst case scenario, a Le Pen one. Can we expect it to increase its representation in the National Assembly? And I guess probably the most important question, and this is I guess the question that's asked by any sort of revolutionary of a of or any leftists of um of a broad left formation, does it actually have a serious perspective of building mass struggle outside Parliament? Um, 
Well, uh, two things there. Yes, uh, so you, 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 you're right to underline that in June there are the legislative elections. Uh, so the whole parliament will be, re- will be replaced. Uh, and indeed, the new president can't do much uh, if he does get a government of its own side. Uh, of its own side. Now, he almost always does. Uh, because uh, electorates tend to be are traditionally generous with the party that just run the presidential election because people think, hey, give him a chance, he won. You know? um, so uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, which is interesting to, interesting to see the difference between Macron and Le Pen, Macron and his allies are, I think there's 340 uh, members of parliament. Le Pen has seven uh, members of parliament. So in fact, you know, I'm not expecting Le Pen to win, but it, 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 uh, if she did, it would, would, would be a major constitutional crisis. Um, yes, I am expecting La France. La France has 17 MPs at the moment. You, you'd think they were dozens and dozens because they, they managed to make a lot of noise, which is good. Um, yes, I am expecting them to have considerably more, but, you know, I would say dozens more rather than not hundreds more. Uh, and so they'll better, better, better thing. As for extra parliamentary struggle, uh, the, uh, that, that is either, uh, strikes or anti-racist movements. Those are the two big ones at the moment. Uh, the two big possibilities at the moment. Um, well, uh, as traditionally, reformist leaders tend to think that, uh, strikes and so on should be organized by the trade unions, uh, and that political parties should support them rather than organize them. Uh, and so I think that will continue. I think, uh, uh I'm not expecting the, uh, the false Sansumese to say, hey, let's call a strike on this or that, but they will support the strikes, which will certainly happen, uh, because if Macron gets back in, uh, he will certainly launch more attacks, maybe try again on the pensions, although he failed, failed last time. Uh, he's also hinted that he would like students to pay a lot of money to go to university, which they don't at the moment, and that, would, that is explosive uh, in France. It's interesting that uh, uh, no right-wing politician before Macron last month has ever said it would be good for students to, to pay a lot of money to, to go to university. Uh, because it's just too dangerous a thing to say in France. Um, so that will be, you know, there'll be some big fights fright, to come. As for other questions like anti-racism, well, this is interesting because uh, uh, last year in, in 2021, there was a big demonstration against the far right. Um, and although this involved many organisations, the France Insoumise uh, uh, members of Parliament were central to setting it going. Um, so, you know, I think they, they can have a role. Um, I mean, it's going to remain an organization which is based around electoral politics, although it's also very uh, heterogeneous. So in one town, the, the uh, France Hansomese group might be quite involved in, in local struggles, and in another town, not too much when there isn't an election. Uh, it's all very, very heterogeneous. Uh, the France on Sumi also, um, you know, they are still very dependent on um, Mélenchon's personality, which is a dynamic reinforced by a presidential ca- um, campaign, which inevitably inevitably puts the focus on an individual. Um, but they do have a host of other talented and high-profile leaders, and um, you know, they seem to also have le feu follet or the fire within. Um, John, can you comment and, or maybe like, comment on that, or maybe describe some of them for us? Yes, I mean, I, I think that the uh, the uh, the idea that the France has to be depends on 
uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's personality. I don't really agree. Uh, this is this is how the press has like, has like to put it. Uh, or, in, in fact, for a long time, they preferred to put it, you know, he's a megalomaniac. Uh, that's indeed one, one of the reasons that uh, whole sections of the far left are, uh, uh, assume that after 2007 elect- 17 elections, the France Insoumise would just collapse and disappear. <laughs> Because for them it was only, uh, which, I mean, I think that's the, the big tragedy of the far left in France is not to have understood what new left reformism is today. Um, but, uh, yes, the, there's been, there's a whole series of, of other, of other leaders, you know, there's people like Manon Aubry, who uh, was a, was a, a leader of, um, a manager, a director of Oxfam. Uh, there was Clementine Autain, who started in the Communist Party. Uh, Daniel Obono, uh, uh, a black member of parliament who, who's, who's best known for the last 20 years or 30 years. I, I've known her since, since she was a child, in fact. Uh, and I, I met her when she was under 20 fighting against Islamophobia. Um, so, uh, the, there are a series of people and, and some of them have really been built up by Mellorshaw. That is that, that he has really wanted younger, uh, younger leaders to come forward, which I think, would, would, uh, which, which, uh, which I think is great. There's also François Houssin, uh, who, uh, who, among other things, he's a journalist and he, he, uh, he's, these are members of parliament, uh, uh, and he's a journalist and he's made the two best mass circulation political documentaries for the last five years. Uh, most recently, Debout des Femmes, uh, Stand Up Women, uh, which is about, uh, care workers, uh, and, uh, uh, what, as a member of parliament, he tried to do for and with care workers. A fabulous, uh, fabulous uh, uh, documentary. So there's, there's these uh, different uh, personalities, people like Adrien Catanas also, um, and they don't agree on everything, um, and they, they have a very diverse personality. You know, François Houssin in, in particular is a, a bit of a, a bit of a, uh, an independent thinker, let's say. Um, and that, that they, they have different weaknesses as well. I mean, François Houphouët, there's lots of things he hasn't understood about Islamophobia. He refused to come to the demo against Islamophobia 18 months ago. Although, to be fair on him, uh, he then accepted an, in, an invitation uh, of radical Muslims to come and have a couple of hours discussion with them, filmed and put on YouTube. You know, so he's, he still doesn't understand. But you know, at least he's ready to ready to get st- get stuck in there. So yes, I think there are new new leaders uh, uh, coming uh, uh, coming coming up. Hard to say what will happen. I mean, Melanchon is not that old. I mean, he he says that he uh, that this is the last time he will do a, pres- a presidential election. And I can imagine because it's. Uh, I mean, he's done a sh- huge number of meetings and, and, and interviews. Remember, in France, we like three-hour meetings and two-and-a-half-hour uh, interviews. That's the way we do things here. We don't, this, this little half-hour interview, which is just uh, something Australian, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we're getting into, guess, to, I guess, the kind of last kind of question, um, and you feel free to kind of add any concluding comments that you might want to make um, in response to this kind of question. Um, but I guess this is, guess, more, I guess, a question about you know, the kind of future of La France Insoumise. You kind of have pointed out that the kind of far left was kind of wrong to kind of write it off as something that would just end after one kind of election. And, of course, yeah, we've already sort of addressed the kind of question that, you know, of Mélenchon and, I guess, his age. And I guess what what do you kind of see in terms of the future of La France Insoumise in terms of potentially transitioning into a more democratic formation that can at least pass on the leadership baton? Because I guess... This is, um, as you kind of describe, it is a, a resurgence of new left reformism. And 
but what does that yeah what is it what is it actually evolving to and where where is this going oh well <laughs> unfortunately i left my uh crystal ball in a train so <laughs> i'm not sure about that one um the the france Insoumise is, is not a political party uh, you can't you can't be a member uh, you don't pay subs uh, you're part of uh, a network of supporters. Uh, now, the advantage of this, uh, so the disadvantage of this, or many people think the disadvantage of this is that you don't all vote for this policy and not this policy, and you don't all vote for this leader and not this leader. Uh, the advantage of it is that you don't have the tradition on the French uh, uh, radical left of uh, uh, long and painful faction fights with people spending more uh, debating weekends with their own faction than the with them with the rest of the world. Uh, I've I've done this in, in the in the far left in France. It's incredible the amount of time you can spend writing policy documents that nobody will read. Um, so you know, I mean, the whole question about democracy is really democracy in order to do what? I mean, personally, it doesn't bother me much um, that uh, a particular policy of the France Insoumise has not got the or has not asked for the majority votes of the people who are active for the France Insoumise. But that's because, you know, I'm a Marxist. And I'm sure that if we asked everybody completely democratically uh, their uh, their opinions, we wouldn't get Marxist results because we're a minority. So, so it's like that doesn't really bother me much. So I'm not really answering the que- your question in the sense that I'm not quite sure what the uh, what the France Insoumise will become. Mélenchon considers that the old-fashioned way of doing a party, uh, the party machine, is is... Out of date, part, partly because of the new technology, that is that you can get information much more quickly. You don't, you don't need to go to your, I'm not talking about your organization. Huh? You don't need to go to your branch meeting to know what's going on. Don't, don't tell comrades I said that. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, the, the, and so, you know, there's this idea that you can do things differently. Now, the advantage of that is that, you know, if you can be part of the France Insoumise and produce a revolutionary paper and sell it and, and nobody bothers you because there's no party discipline stopping you. Um, so, I mean, you know, it, it kind of suits me in a way, because although I'm relatively in favour of structured revolutionary organisations, um, rather unstructured reformist ones quite suit me, because that allows me to, 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 to get, in, get, get stuck in and do the work to build the organisation, but also have my uh, independent voice and with my own opinions. Uh, and even, you know, like I say, produce, I mean, I could produce a paper if there was enough of me. Yeah, and um, I guess just one last. Um, we'll finish this up. Do you have, I guess, any kind of final comments you want like to make? Well, I think that you know, obviously, the the headlines abroad are there are fascists everywhere in France, and I understand that. Um, but you know, for, there are forty nine million um, adults in France. Ten and a half million voted for the fascists. Uh, very, very massively more among old people and in the countryside. Now, I'm not, I've, I've nothing against old people living in the countryside, except that they must get bored. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, I, I, it, it's also a very exciting time. Um, and uh, the level of class struggle has been very high. And I'm expecting there to be more mass strikes very soon, uh, very soon, whether it's on whether it's on pensions, whether it's on wages, because, of course, inflation is coming back to Europe uh, in a big way. Uh, and also. Because Macron was obliged to spend billions on supporting wage workers um, during the pandemic, and indeed because of the 
balance of forces, wage workers in France got better support than in most other countries. Uh, but because of that, he will have extra arguments to do to double double the austerity. Uh, because, you know, they, they, they've, they've borrowed a load of money and they want to pay it back while still continuing to cut the taxes for the rich. It's not hard to, 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 to calculate it. So I don't think, um, uh, you know, as the scarecrow said in The Wizard of Oz, I think it might get darker before it gets lighter. Uh, but there's also a lot of exciting things going on, a lot of hope. And I think that the France Insoumise uh, is going to be a central player for a number of years. Uh, and I think, you know, that people need to uh, get stuck in um, at the same time as I mean, I, I say at the same time as as keeping an independent Marxist voice. But I think that goes without saying, because how could you possibly be a Marxist and not keep an independent voice? It, it, it just it can't, can't exist. All right. Well, thank you very much um, for that, John. Um, I think this has been a very insightful interview, um, a very kind of good discussion. And in fact, yeah, we'll definitely like to probably continue this discussion when possibly the second round results, I guess, come in. Um, and I guess we'll kind of see. I mean, it'll dep- it definitely kind of depend. I mean, there'll be probably be a lot to talk about if Le Pen wins, uh, whether, whether, whether the implication with Macron, I guess we're kind of already know what to expect if he were to win. So, but we're not sure what to expect with a Le Pen president, which is actually a kind of scary kind of prospect. Anyway, thank you very uh, much, that, that, that has been There has been a, a bunch of uh, uh, anti-fascist demonstrations called for next Saturday um, in France. And there's also a series of uh, universities who are uh, in revolt at the moment. Now, I, I, think that the, I think that the protest should be under the slogan, not one vote for Le Pen because that manages to get together the people who are going to vote Macron reluctantly and those who are going to boycott the second round. And I think we shouldn't divide those people, get them together to fight the pen. That's my idea. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we've got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and we're just playing an interview with um, John Mullen, um, who is a French um, socialist, where we're discuss- having a good discussion with him about the French elections, and it was an interview that was actually recorded yesterday. And yeah, apologise just for some technical um, difficulties that kind of happened during the recording, but um, when the podcast is uploaded on freecr.org.au on our website, um, that will be all corrected, um, and it will um, yeah, basically we'll fix all the, the issues that kind of occurred um, during that recording. So I was going to go, it is now around 8 a.m. or 2 a.m. and I guess it was sort of time to go to the Green Left kind of activist calendar. So I'll pass it on to Sue to sort of announce some of the upcoming events that are coming. Okay, well, some of the upcoming events, one of them is happening over this Easter holiday um, on Sunday the 17th of April. Uh, 
at 3 p.m. There'll be a Sri Lankan protest in Federation Square, and it's based around justice for Easter attack victims um, from a bombing of some ch- church uh, that have or churches that happened in Sri Lanka in 2019, and um, it's fo- while it's focused around justice for Easter attack victims it may also very well um, broaden into a discussion about the economic crisis in Sri Lanka because there's a very big uh, protest at Federation Square, I think it was last weekend, because the government is in total crisis and there's a total economic crisis where the government can't pay its bills for certain basic services, including hospitals, and people are you know, suffering enormously. A lot of people are just starving. Um, And so it's um, there's a really big economic crisis and um, a lot of, you know, chaos for ordinary working class people in Sri Lanka at the moment. Um, So that was that's the first event that's coming up. Then on the Thursday, the 21st of May at 6.30 p.m., um, we've got a public meeting on why we should oppose militarism and war. And, I mean, basically this is uh, a, for, a forum that's been uh, organised by jointly by Green Left and Socialist Alliance. And the speakers will be Richard Tanter, who's an academic who's focused on these issues um, for a very long time, um, someone called Dave Sweeney, who's been part of the anti-nuclear movement for many years, and myself, Sue Bolton, uh, representing Socialist Alliance. And part of the purpose of the public meeting on why we should oppose the US-Australia alliance, why we should oppose militarism and war, is because what we're seeing at the moment in the world, I mean, not just in Australia, but in Australia in particular, is the Australian government is adopting a very warlike, aggressive, militaristic pose internationally, and they're pumping up the military spending on $171 billion on these nuclear submarines, but also they're massively increasing spending to uh, increase the number of people who are employed um, by the armed services and and new, all sorts of new equipment. They've announced um, other supersonic weapons um, using noise. Um, they you know, and Dutton, uh, Peter Dutton, uh, who sort of, you know, acts exactly like a pig dog in the sense of very belligerent uh, approach. Um, you know, the Australian government is, is going to try and take us into a war or a much more militaristic stance, which you know, creates dangers for the world. I mean, you look at Ukraine and you see that, you know, like this is an absolute and utter disaster for Ukrainian people, but it's also a disaster for Russian people as well, um, that this uh, Russian government has been, um, you know, gone into this war. And in the lead-up to the war, U.S. sort of escalating things rather than de-escalating things. So this is very important for us in Australia as well as around the world. Um, So this um, meeting will be held in the Resistance Centre 
which is level 5, 407 Swanson Street in Melbourne, opposite RMIT and close to Melbourne Central Station. There'll also be a Zoom um, Zoom, uh, ability as well, um, but we're encouraging people to come in in person if at all possible. Um, That is all on the Green Left Activist calendar, um, but you can check it out on the website or else... um, you know, contact us to get a copy of the calendar. There's also another protest happening on Saturday, the 23rd of April at 2pm, which there's a refugee protest happening at uh, Mitre Detention Centre in um, Camp Road, Broadmeadows, and this has been organised by the Refugee Action Collective. Now, a lot of people will have heard that uh, a lot of the Mediv- most of the Medivac refugees have been released from detention, but there's still six Medivac refugees in the Mitre Detention Centre. So the re- protest is being organised to say, don't forget about these last six uh, Medivac refugees, we need to free them all. Um, so that's Saturday the 23rd of April at 2pm. And then just a bit further away to put on people's agendas is that the annual May Day March uh, is on the f- Sunday the 1st of May uh, at 1.30pm outside Trades Hall. Um, so keep uh, put that in your calendar as well, but we'll remind people in the next Green Left Radio program about that. All right. Well, thank you for, for that, Sue, for, I guess, all the coming announcements. Um, I'll just go play. A, we're going to have an interview shortly around 8, 10 a.m., so I'll just play a quick few, um, a quick, um, few announcements. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 a.m. disaster hits a group of islands scattered around the ocean like Tonga, it is evident how the responses and actions can be difficult for these multitude of uh, beings have no idea what to do, plus no equipment or tools to work with, and the impact will show on everything, physically, mentally, financially, and people due to being uninformed and unequipped. So maybe this is, um, this is a question for the Tongan government. How can you manage situation like this better in the future? Subscribe to 3CR, informed, articulate and alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 
You're listening to Green Left Radio. And for our first live interview for the program, we are very happy to be having um, to have Quinn here, who is part of Blockade Australia. Blockade Australia is actually a new um, is actually a new kind of organisation that has been organising, I guess, a number of direct actions, including blockades of coal ports in um, within Newcastle. And Quinn was actually someone who was actually part of some of the earlier kind of mobilisations um, that Blockade Australia had organised around the Newcastle coal ports. So, good morning, um, Quinn. Uh, good morning, Jacob. Thanks for having us this morning. Yeah. So maybe to kind of start off. Um, in terms of um, Blockade Australia, I guess I wanted to sort of hear, I guess, um, just for our listeners, because I guess one of the um, purposes of this interview was to sort of give a bit of a um, give a bit of a plug for some of the activities that Blockade Australia is doing. I'm aware that you're you're planning a series of mobilisations in June, um, late June, and I guess what what can you tell us, I guess, about Blockade Australia and you know some of its aims and objectives before we go into sort of um, you know go into some of the, the specific details of what you have coming up. Uh, yeah, thank you. So, yeah, just want to start uh, acknowledging that I'm coming from uh, Darug country today and, uh, yeah, paying respects to elders of the community, past, present and emerging, um, and, yeah, recognising that I'm um, talking with you on unceded land. Um, but, yeah, so um, we kicked off Blockade Australia late last year um, for a mobilisation in um, Newcastle where we targeted the coal port, which is the largest coal port in the world, and... Um, yeah, and then just recently we finished off some mobilisation at the Port of Botany, um, which is the larger con- largest container terminal in the continent, um, and also the, the first point of invasion as well. Um, so I guess our tactics is, is that we've been um, targeting um, through a sustained period of disruptions um, infrastructure which we deem to be of importance to the Australian operation, so important in a political, economic, material and symbolic sense. Um, and I, I guess in that, trying to identify the Australian operation as a whole as opposed to um, kind of known um, industries which are often uh, targeted by um, by similar kinds of disruption. Um, so, yeah, I guess trying to trying to build build a movement and a culture of a sustained resistance um, in the climate climate movement, um, and pivoting away from those direct industries um, to a kind of systemic uh, intersectional approach. Hmm. And going into, I guess, about that kind of systematic approach, because I guess you know probably one of the most important kind of things that is obviously kind of driving. Uh, you know, a lot of people on at Blockade Australia or any sort of person who is protesting for kind of climate justice is ultimately there is obviously, you know, a political kind of context. And I guess, you know, I want to kind of hear from your sort of, you know, you know, the context of why it is actually so important to put your body on the line um, to fight for climate justice, especially in the context of the climate emergency that we're actually facing today. You know, we're already facing the massive impacts of climate change right now um, through the massive sort of floods. Um, you know, we have a government we have a, a government that is essentially addicted to put burning coal in the ground. So I kind of want to hear, I guess, some of your sort of analyses on, you know, your perspective on what what has driven, um, you know, people to this point that we have to blockade these um, new, um, coal ports. For sure, yeah. So a lot of a lot of the individuals involved have come from various kind of uh, climate or social justice movements, uh, and yeah, there's there's a whole lot of people that have um, been working towards Blockade Australia. Um, I guess yeah, in, in the attempt to try to 
um, use some tactics which have um, been employed and have been successful around the continent, so non-violent direct action, um, to to cause significant enough disruption that um, I guess we are uh, creating a a kind of um, um, a crisis which which is un- which can't be ignored, um, and so. Yeah, I guess in in doing the kind of tactics that we are, we're using um, uh, yeah people people's bodies and um, in ideally uh, very very safe and calculated ways, um, which can um, impact the the kind of a, a significant um, industries and significant um, infrastructure to the Australian operation. Um, and yeah, I guess it's it's quite a strategic um, kind of direction that we're going in, and. Yeah, certainly trying to encourage uh, people already in those spaces um, to think about how they might be able to be the most effective in their actions, um, and try in, in that in that space kind of trying to uh, yeah I guess encourage and create a kind of um, uh, strategic organising culture of how we can move forward on a yeah with a systemic approach that that brings in a lot of people that are already in this space. Hmm. And so, um, what can you tell us? I guess a bit about some of the kind of acti- upcoming upcoming activities that Blockade Australia has kind of planned. Like, from my understanding, you actually have some information sessions coming up, but you've also planned um, uh, a, a kind of a bigger, uh, a, a broader sort of mobilisation. Um, I guess, what can you tell us about you know some of the info nights coming up, and also the main sort of mobilisation that you're kind of building towards, and also what has been targeted in terms of this, yeah, in terms of the, the strategic approach. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, we've got a few um, info night uh, sessions coming up, and a few opportunities for people to come and ask questions and get involved and. And figure out how they might um, might best be able to uh, jump into this space. Um, so we've got, I believe, an on, um, online info night uh, coming up on the 20th of April. Um, and yeah, there are a few people uh, around the east coast of the continent at the moment who are organising um, uh, in-person info sessions as well. So yeah, we definitely encourage people to jump onto our socials. We've got uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and some Telegram channels um, for people that that might be interested in staying in the loop. And, yeah, at the moment, the main thing that we're working towards is mobilising people to come to uh, Sydney in June 27th to uh, July 2nd um, and uh, employing, I I guess, some similar tactics to what people would have seen uh, already with the previous mobilisation. Um, but also trying to make those tactics quite accessible for people who uh, maybe haven't um, been in um, this direct action space before. Um, ideally trying to get uh, hundreds of people to come and mobilise um, in the streets of Sydney, um, yeah, using some disruptive tactics, which, yeah, some of which, um, you know, may include, um, you know, similar kind of... Um, Kind of devices and similar um, actions that people would have seen already, but yeah, definitely um, going to be a bit more flexible to people's um, yeah people's different skill sets and capacity to come and uh, get involved. So by no means does it require people who um, you know have specialised skill sets to come and get involved. There's a number of ways that people can do that. Um, but yeah, I guess the, the info nights um, and there'll be a series of. NVDA trainings and things like that, that people can uh, get a bit more comfortable in 
in figuring out what where their place might be in in getting involved. Yeah, and what can you tell us, I guess, about the main mobilisation that's sort of coming up? Because I noticed there is some dates put forward on the the blockade kind of Australia um, kind of Facebook page. Yeah, so um, that mobilisation is going to be um, in um, you know, a lot of those actions are going to be taking place in the heart of Sydney. Um, the specifics of which I guess will kind of determine as as we get closer to the date and as more people start getting involved. Um, and yeah, I, I guess um, yeah. Again, we like uh, coming out of the the previous two mobilisations, um, trying to target um, areas of of um, significant importance to the Australian operation. So we deem Sydney to be, um, I guess, uh, quite important in a number of ways. Um, obviously, a kind of economic hub of um, of the Australian state, but also, uh, yeah, a kind of a symbolic importance as well, being that uh, Sydney, Sydney being the first kind of city of the Australian project um, where where first people were were dispossessed over 250 years ago. And yeah, and and trying, to, I guess, trying to um, uh, capture in people's minds that if we come together uh, through a period of sustained disruption, and ideally in, in larger numbers than we've seen already as well, um, then we can we can create meaningful change to to try to to resist climate inaction, which is the the name of the, the mobilisation. So, yeah, I would um, whilst whilst the specifics um, are, are yet to be. Determined. I think if, if people are interested and um, have ideas and uh, have ways that they think they'd like to be involved, it's definitely uh, kind of flexible and organic to people's, um, you know, interests. And yeah, um, with yeah, a lot of the tactics being, you know, definitely you know non-violent civil civil disobedience and direct action. Um, but yeah, those, those actions will kind of kind of be determined on yeah what people are willing to to do. But um, yeah. Um, I, I guess trying to create the space for large numbers of people to come and occupy uh, parts of the city and uh, critical infrastructure, which um, we're intending to, to shut down the, the city of Sydney for that period. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, um, the, the dates I noticed for that is um, kind of June from June 27th to July 2nd. Is that sort of set in stone in terms of like the planned sort of mobilisation? Even though you have no, obviously no specific details, that's sort of when you're when you're sort of planning it around. Yeah, yeah. So that's definitely the period, and yeah, between now and then, we're um, we're trying to uh, reach out to people and uh, yeah, get people to come um, to Sydney for that period. And there'll be opportunities for people to upskill um, in in particular ways um, coming up to those dates. Um, yeah, and then yeah, I guess yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty set in stone. So from the from the twenty seventh of June, I'm uh, going to see a lot of um, you know kind of road tactics and a, and a number of other tactics which I guess we, we've seen employed by different groups around the continent um, previously um, as well as the previous mobilisations but yeah um, I guess something a bit different obviously the, the last two mobilisations have been uh, closed mobilisations we haven't announced them ahead of time uh, so this is a bit different and, and as you can imagine uh, takes a fair bit of organising trying to get people from around the continent to come and uh, get involved so yeah, it's, it's it's quite a bit of outreach, quite a bit of uh, skill sharing, and um, yeah, I guess we're you know, excited to see um, what what kind of um, enthusiasm comes into that space. Hmm. 
All right. So, Quinn, do you, um, we're running a bit out of time for our interview, but guess, do you have, I guess, any final comments and or any concluding comments that you'd like to kind of make um, for our listeners for the program? For sure. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's really great, um, you know, uh, the kind of tactics that we've employed um, are quite a, you know, important example in our minds of the significant um, kind of meaningful impact that a small amount of individuals can make um, and that, you know, coming up to um, the election in particular, like that, there's, um, you know, there's definitely a narrative and an understanding in the Australian political landscape um, of ways that we can create change. But we recognise that the Australian system is rigged to benefit those in um, the ruling class and positions of power. And so we're definitely encouraging people to broaden the scope in the way that they they um, uh, act as political agents and thinking about how um, yeah people from around this continent, regardless of their skill sets, regardless of um, what they um, the spaces that they might have been in previously, is that there's a space for everyone in this movement, um, and that yeah there's there's some really um, you know great ways that people can get involved. Um, there's some really you know amazing communities um, in this space, and yeah. I think, you know, we're, we're at a, a point in time where the window is closing on um, meaningful climate action and um, non-violent direct action is, uh, you know, and the, and the tactics that we've employed have been proven to be successful in pushing for the kind of change that we need. Um, and that, you know, whilst we've, we've seen the, the response of the state um, and by, by no means are we the first to face the repression of, um, of the state, and um, as, as we know, the police and prisons uh, operate um, to support the uh, the power of of, um, of the Australian operation. Um, but yeah, we're, we're not being, we're not disincentivised by uh, the response of the state, and we're not going to be um, scared or intimidated by the way that they are responding. Um, and so, yeah, whilst um, you know we're we're um, you know, very uh, frustrated and angered by um, the way that our friends have been treated by by the state in response. We still have a couple of friends who are going through the legal system now as a result of their actions. But, yeah, we're going to uh, continue to keep on resisting and um, to kind of force political change that we, we deem is necessary for for a safe planet and for a fairer society. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Quinn. And, yeah, we'll definitely keep the kind of dates in mind. And, and in fact, FreeCR will definitely... At this point, we'll pop, FreeCR will likely try and be covering um, the blockade um, as, it, as it goes on from our kind of different kind of programs. And, of course, um, the program that you're, um, you're being interviewed by, um, Green Left Radio, will also absolutely try and cover the, the blockade in the lead-up, but also during it for, for Green Left as well. So, yeah, all the solidarity right, yeah, to you, Quinn. And, um, yeah. yeah, thanks very yeah, much thanks, for being on our program. Thanks for the, yeah, thanks for the solidarity and for having us on. And, yeah, just a, a final call, call to action for anyone interested or have questions, um, you know, there's definitely the space for you. So, um, please, you know, please reach out, get in contact and see how you might be able to uh, learn more. Yeah, thank you very much again, um, Quinn. Great. Thanks, Steve Jacob. Take care. Right, we we're just interviewing um, Quinn from um, Blockade um, Australia, which is actually a, a new kind of um, 
um, direct act, a non-violent direct action environmental justice group that has been formed recently that have organised actually a number of kind of blockades and mobilisations. And in fact, they're going to be, um, they're planning a big, a big series of mobilisations in Sydney from June 27th to July 2nd. And they also will be hosting a number of info nights. So yeah, check Blockade Australia Facebook for all the info. Anyway, I'll just go play, um, a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio. When disaster hits a group of islands scattered around the ocean like Tonga, it is evident how the responses and actions can be difficult. For these multitude of uh, beings have no idea what to do, plus no equipment or tools to work with, and the impact will show on everything, physically, mentally, financially, and people due to being uninformed and unequipped. So maybe this is, um, this is a question for the Tongan government. How can you manage situation like this better in the future? Subscribe to 3CR, informed, articulate and alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 Right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, we're getting into, I guess, kind of the end of, of our program. Um, but I guess, kind of, want to thank all our listeners and um, and guests for guests being on our program today. And yeah, Sue, do you have any sort of final kind of things you kind of like to kind of add, um, like just anything kind of in general? Well, just. Um Maybe just one little thing which Jacob uh, sort of mentioned to me just then is, you know, while there are all of these um, big issues which are basically being ignored by the major parties as part of the election campaign, like, you know, total absolute full-on housing crisis, there are some um, little struggles happening in local areas, one of which won just recently in Brunswick, which was a community campaign to stop a bunning set up uh, being, from being set up right beside hundreds of people's um, units uh, and houses. Um, and they actually had a victory, um, despite this being, you know, odds against them, the whole VCAT planning system, preferences the big developers um, they had a, a full uh, victory and they've won, they had a massive community campaign and they won at VCAT so I think all these little struggles are also feed into bigger struggles so um, great work for those activists yeah and um, you can read more on the Green Left website if you go into greenleft.org.au which has a full article on the campaign fortunately we've run out of time now um, like to thank all our listeners, you're listening to Green Left Radio and stay tuned for Earth Matters. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call one 800 634-206. Arise you workers from their slumbers. Arise you prisoners of want. 
for reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back, reds underneath your beds and that crap.